Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua 23. Am I on? Good. Okay. Joshua 23. We're going to be finishing up Joshua uh, this morning. Um, Though there's another chapter, I'm going to leave chapter 24 to our small groups um, to discuss. And so we're going to lean in, though I'll refer to chapter 24 this morning. We're going to really look at Joshua 23. And, And one of the reasons why... And I think we all know this, as uh, you're old as most of us, we've been to our share of funerals already in our life, and last words are important, the last words spoken over someone, and especially if you get the opportunity to actually hear the last words from someone. I, I can still remember going to a funeral of a, a brother named David. He was a mighty evangelist at the church that, I, that me and Christina went to most of our married life, and um, he had terminal cancer, and so he was able to record the last words that he wanted to speak to his children and to his wife and to his church and then to the people that were going to be sitting at his funeral one day. And I can tell you, at that funeral, wasn't any of us missing any words he said. There was no wasted words in his message. It was the last words he was going to be able to speak to those that he loved the most. And this is the context of, of Joshua 23 and 24. Joshua had not been a perfect leader, but he had been a good leader. And most importantly to our message today, he had been a faithful leader. And this is the truth. There's no perfect leaders. There's no perfect followers. And so we need to be reminded of things. And as it were, what Joshua is doing is to some degree simply reminding the leaders, and then the people and us of everything that we've sort of learned throughout Joshua in our study. We need to be reminded, and I'm, I'm breaking them down into two categories today, our priorities and then God's goodness. Main idea, faith will triumph in the future as we challenge each other to remember our God-given priorities and the goodness of our unchanging God. This is the final charge of a faithful leader. So we're going to bounce around a little bit, but everything is going to fall under these two categories, our priorities and God's goodness. So let's look at verse 1, chapters 23, verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years... Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them. And so what we call this, if you see that in your notes, a charge. A charge comes from one with authority. That's what this word means. It is to instruct, to urge, but it is to do it authoritatively. And these have commands that he expects people under his charge to follow. It was, as it were, the last charges that he would make. Joshua in his charge, and I'll try to preach like this to show what the text means. He gets progressively more intense. He's trying to understand there is blessings that come from obedience, and there is a high cost of idolatry. And so he's given a charge to address both of these things. He's teaching them that God has brought them into this land. But their ability to abide in the land was conditioned. 
on their faithfulness and their obedience to their God. So who is he charging? If you notice verse 2, he is first charging the elders. And in the Old Testament, they called those the elders that live among the people. That's where we get our understanding of biblical elders. Elders are from among God's people. In other words, there's one guy said they smell like the sheep. But you see there's also judges and officers. This is a nation, a culture. He wanted to instruct them. So goes the leadership, so goes the church, and so goes the country, and so goes the home. Uh, if This reminds me of what Paul said to the elders in Ephesus. Listen to it, Acts 20, 28. He said this, Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It was Paul's fear. It was Joshua's fear. Those wolves, those Canaanites in the land. So, interesting, the place. The place in chapters 23 is Shiloh. It is this place where the ark is. It is their new base camp, their place of worship in chapters 24, when he addresses the people, it is going to be in Shechem. Shechem was important. It was the place where Abraham stopped. It was the place, you remember, where Dinah had, was, was raped and, and all the, the brothers came to bear on that situation. It was the burial place of Joseph. It was an important place. Uh, look at verse 14. Joshua is about to die. That's his situation. He's about to go the way of all the earth. This is the way we will all go sooner or later. But make no mistake, Joshua has lived. He has lived. He lived beside of Moses. And he has lived. He has learned. And he has grown. And he has been faithful to the end. <laughs> this is probably the only time I'll quote a psychoanalyst. And uh, this guy's name's Eric Fromm. He had a good quote. To die is poignantly bitter. But the idea of having to die without having lived is unbearable. This man has lived. He can say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race and henceforth has laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He could say that. But at the end of his life, he wasn't concerned about himself. He wasn't concerned about giving some kind of epitaph of, of who he was. He was concerned about his people. Their faithfulness, their relationship with God was on his mind. Those were his last thoughts. And so he says, remember your priorities. Remember your priorities. Look at verse 5. Remember that God always keeps his promises. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And so, if you want to really understand why Joshua and, and all of this is making the decisions, and even we talked about last week, the cities of refuge, it is because in Deuteronomy, God had specified when you conquer the land, this is how you're going to settle the land. And so, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and following gives us not only this promise, but then gives them the how-to of it. Uh, verse 1 in Deuteronomy 9 says this, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than you. 
Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know of and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a consuming fire, is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly. As the Lord has promised you, God keeps his promises. He's wanting them to remember that. But here's what he also wants them to remember. Look at in Deuteronomy 9, look at verse 4. God does not remember his promises because you're so good. He doesn't. That's not his point. It says in verse 4, Do not say in your heart, The Lord God has thrust them out because of my righteousness, that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or, or the uprightness of your heart, Are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is why in chapters 3 of Joshua, in verse 10, he can say, you will drive them out. He could say it because God had promised it. Look at with me. Numbers, the book of Numbers 23. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. God is not man. Good news. That he should lie. Or a son of man. That he should change his mind. Has he said it? Will he not do it? Or has he spoken And will he not fulfill it? So, brothers and sisters, what he's teaching us and what you've got to learn today in your life of the unknowns and the hards is, is God gives a promise, he cannot break it. So the question is, do you know the promises of God? Because it's too late when the storm comes and you don't know what they are. And so Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And if that's a promise, then we can trust it. That's good. And so, here's what he's saying. This is just inseparably connected. You've got to be people of the book to know what his promises are. So he says in verse 6, remember, be people of the book. Therefore, Right? Therefore, we know this is biblical people, that how important that word is. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from neither to the right or to the left. There again, Israel's ability to abide and rest in the land was conditioned on their obedience to their faithful God. This is what he's wanting them to know. Joshua is not charging them with anything that he has not been charged with himself. You remember chapter 1 of verse 7 and 8? He tells them to be strong and courageous. And then he says, how will you be strong and courageous? Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, and so you be careful to do what is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. And then... You will have success. Then is conditional. Then. Joshua had practiced this. 
He's 110 years old now. He has been faithful to the end. For the last 25 to 30 years, he has led God's people faithfully. Notice he connects something else in verse 7. Keeping, remember his promises requires you to be people of the book. And when you keep the book, you will remember to be holy people. Saying, remember to be a holy people. Verse 7. Another, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from either the right or to the left. That's a connection. Notice this. Verse 7. That you. This is the application of keeping the book. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of their names of their gods, or swear to them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Israel's holiness was not to become untainted from the surrounding world. They had already begun to make friends with their enemies. And here's the danger when you begin to think that the world is your friend. They will begin to mingle their affections and your affections together. They have affections Everybody is a worshiper. Even the atheists that will teach your students one day when you send them off to college, they are worshipers. We are worshipers because God made us to be. And when you mingle with them, you will become like them. That's what he's saying. And if you don't believe it, just keep reading after our study ends. And you just read the first two chapters of Joshua, and you're going to find a day when everybody did what was right in their own eyes again. And they become like the neighbors that they embrace their affections. God is not calling them to some kind of divine segregation. He's teaching them to be faithful to Yahweh and to Him alone. And this is exactly what Jesus taught. Do you remember Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters. You're going to love one? That means you're going to hate the other. Of course love has hate in it. If you do not hate things, you do not really love anything. Love always has hate. That's what he's saying. You can't serve both. God hates double-mindedness. So he says, above everything. I almost made this a category. It was so important. Look at verse 11. Joshua's highest priority in his last words was a relational priority. Remember to love your God supremely. Verse 11, he says, Be very careful, therefore, to love your God. This is supreme. Because, as we have just said, God hates divided affections. We're going to say this for growth group, but flip over one chapter. To chapter 24, look at verse 15. Listen to what Joshua says. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites who dwell in this land. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the issue here. You cannot love God supremely and at the same time love the world. Matthew 22, 37 says it like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This thing right here between our ears is what gets us in trouble. And God said, it's mine. I paid for it on the cross. It's not just your heart. You cannot love God in your heart and keep sinning with Him in your mind. He tells you to love Him with your mind. If you want to get over and work through what we're going through in our lives, we've got to bring our mind to bear into God's Word. We've got to love Him with it. Our priorities, you see, good or bad, causes an action. Our priorities necessarily lead to actions, whether we're in relationship with God or the world. And he says, give yourself to God, and it will always lead to faithfulness. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is just true. There are times in our lives when it is difficult to know what in the world is going on. What is God doing? And why is He doing it this way? And why then? And why now? And all of these whys. And in the midst of that, Joshua is teaching us, you need to remember God's goodness. You need to remember it. So go back with me now in Joshua 23. Look at verse 3. We need to remember what God has done for us. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. He's fought your enemies. That's what he's telling them. First, he's fought your enemies in verse 3. They were eyewitnesses to God's work in their life. They had no excuse. They had seen his faithfulness proven over and over again. Since God has helped you, he's fought for you, he's defeated your enemies. And little by little, their land became more and more conquered. This is important to remember this. Because we live in a day where talk therapy rules. Where the only help you get from the world is to think better thoughts about yourself. And that will simply leave you in a depressed state while they give you medicine to drug down how you feel. Here's how you fight, brothers and sisters. You fight with the goodness of God. No matter how I feel, no matter what the forecast is, we fight with this. This is your life, brothers and sisters. Listen to me today. This is the only way that you can fight and have hope. Psalms 57 has been important to me this week. Psalm 57 verse 1 says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storm of destruction passes by. I cry out to the Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, is David avoiding his issues? No. He's just stacking them against his sovereign, good, faithful God. And saying, He's going to bring rescue to me. He's going to finish what He starts. He remembers His goodness and His power because there's nothing scarier than a sovereign God who's not good. He's good, He's faithful, and He has proven it not only because He's fought their battles, because they stand on a land that wasn't theirs. And they stand on a land that was first God's. Verse 4, Behold, I have allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations, that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan 
the great sea, to the west. This is a, a practical but profound exercise in our life in times of despair or trials or unknowns or especially in times of victory and blessings and triumph. We've got to remember that God's past mercies guarantee us His future mercies. Just grab a hold of this. If you want to turn back to Deuteronomy, you can. It's Deuteronomy 6. If not, just listen. Deuteronomy 6 verse 10 says this. And when the Lord your God brings you into a land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear. It is Him you shall serve. And by His name you will swear. Here's what He's saying. (laughs) You're living in homes that you didn't build. You're sitting in a reclining chair that you didn't buy, and you're going to the refrigerator and getting stuff out of it that you didn't purchase. Matter of fact, you drove in a car this morning that, that someone else provided. And when you got to the house in, in that land, the keys were already in the switch. That's what he's telling his people. Don't you remember all this you just moved into? Because I gave it to you. Think about it. I've said this a thousand times, and I'll say it as long as I live. What do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have right now, including your faculties that are putting my words together with understanding that God is not sustaining right now, and if He didn't, you wouldn't be able to? 1 Peter teaches us a better way. Joshua's teaching us a better way to motivate people. That you motivate people better with the goodness of God than shame slapping them into obedience. Church has done plenty of that, haven't we? First Peter 2, you don't have to even turn there. Just check me later. What he's saying is, if you know God is good, indicative, a statement of fact. God is good. Do you know he's good? Then two things, two imperatives. Long to know him and long to become like him. The indicatives lead to the imperatives in the Bible. That's the way, one way you can understand Scripture. And then the way to motivate people then is not simply stop it or God's going to get you. That's in here, by the way. But the, the whole thing up to this point of the series of the cost is saying God is good. Trust Him. Don't you see what He's done? You see, past goodness gives us faith. In the future goodness, if you've never read John Piper's book, Future Grace, that's where that thought came from. God's past mercy is proof he's going to be merciful. God has always kept his promises to Joshua. So Joshua can can grab hold of this at his moment of death that God is going to keep working in his people's life. Not because of their goodness, but because of God's goodness. You see, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, God is all you have. He is not just all you need. Verse 8 says, But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done today. Cling to Him. Here's the truth. 
You are clinging to something now, and you will always cling to something or someone. We, as we are born worshipers, we are born clingers. That word means to hold fast. And matter of fact, it was interesting. In Isaiah 41.7, it gives us the root of this word. If you've ever watched, I, I, I'm a metalworking guy at my heart, you know. I've did it, I did that my whole life. If you ever watch somebody build swords, they'll take two pieces of metal and they'll put them together. And through heat and pressure, they begin to solder or weld those people. Those two pieces of metal become fused. They become inseparable. Here's what he says. That's what you must be with your God. Because if you're not, you will become inseparable with the Canaanites' God. One is inevitable. If you don't do the other. This is what it means. To cling means to follow fully. Numbers 14, 24 says this of Caleb. It said, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land. That's, that's what it means to cling. He follows me fully. He trusts in my goodness. And he knows God is all I have. You see, in order to cling to something, it must be stronger than you. It doesn't do any good to fall into the ocean and find a piece of cardboard floating on the water. You can grab it if you want to. It's not going to do any good. You've got to grab a hold of something that's stronger than yourself. Psalm 63.8 says this, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 73 says it better than anywhere else I know in the Bible. Verse 25 says, Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is all we have. God is all we have. And so... That's where the strength comes from. You see that in verse 9 and 10? Remember, your strength comes from the Lord. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts a flight to flight a thousand. Since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Our God is sovereign. He's almighty. He has made us promises and so we can be confident that he's going to fight with us and for us this is the image here the image comes from deuteronomy 32 let me just read it to you it's good deuteronomy 32 verse 30 says how could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock has sold them and the lord has given them up Verse 31 says this, For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Our enemies are by themselves. Here's the thing. We're not <laughs> by ourselves. And so Ephesians 6 tells us, Then put on God's armor and fight with it. Because it's His armor and He's given it to me. And because He's given it to me, it's mine to wear and miss my sword to... To wield because it's God's sword and He's given it to me. I am what God says I am, and I will do exactly what God says I will do. Remember, finally, and even more soberly, that God always disciplines His own. 
This is also his promise in verse 12. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriage with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from the good ground that the Lord has given you. I want to teach you something maybe in Maybe you've never thought about it, and maybe you have. There again, I, I owe this to a, one of those dead guys. It's really hard to read, but really worth studying. It was a man named Jonathan Edwards. And what he taught me was to see, even in this passage, God's restraining grace and how he uses it to protect the godly. You can turn sometime and look at it in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham, you remember this story, lies to a pagan king about his wife and says it was sister. She takes him into harem. You remember that story? You remember what happened? More importantly, do you remember what didn't happen? The king didn't touch Abraham's wife. And God came to a pagan king <laughs> through a dream. Listen to what he said to, to this pagan. Yes, I know that you have done this in integrity of your heart. It, is, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That, brothers and sisters, is God restraining grace. God restrains evil men in this evil world, in this fallen world, from being more evil and more fallen than it is already. And if it was not for Him, where would we be? Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. If all natural men are God's enemies, what would they not do if they were not restrained? The answer is, what are they going to do to the enemies of God? The devil, if he could, would kill you in your seat right now. But he can't because of God's restraining grace. And if it blows into our life, it blows into our life with a purpose. Because our God restrains things that we do not know until we get to eternity that we have been protected from. God says, if you turn from me, my restraining grace will be lifted. And none of us want that. God's restraining grace corrects the godly. He corrects us. That's what he's speaking of in verse 15 and 16. I, I want you to think about this for a minute. As you think about God's word and how he corrects us, and I've already alluded to this. Just turn with me to Galatians 4. God restrains us through reminding believers of who we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is not given to you to shame slap you he is given to you to remind you of the righteousness of God that was given to you in Jesus Christ. It's how he motivates us. How he encourages us. It's how he strengthens us. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son 
and of a son and heir through God. That's what the Holy Spirit reminds you of in the dark nights of your soul. You are mine, you are cherished, and there's no one can take you out of my hand. That's the Holy Spirit when it happens into your life. And he is restraining, protecting, pulling us closer. God restrains us through his word. In giving hard words like we see at the end of this passage. And like John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. God's restraining grace protects us through the word that He has given us. Spurgeon, hadn't quoted Spurgeon in a while, had to, get, had to get one in for him. says, God will not allow his children to sin successfully. Amen. It's good news. Discipline is God's restraining and pursuing goodness in your life. So what? Look at me before we turn anywhere to... To Joshua 23, verse 14. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your heart and soul, all of you, that not one word has failed in all the good things that the Lord has promised concerning you. All have come to pass, and not one of them has failed. I want us to see today that Jesus Christ, all God's promises are yes. And so, let's look at 2 Corinthians. I'm going to quote it from the New Living Translation because it just really grabbed me today. You can, you can see the message is clear in any version that you have. 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. Begin in verse 19. There again, I'm reading in the New Living Translation. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for His glory. Mm. Message right there, isn't it? God's promises are true, trustworthy, and guaranteed in Jesus Christ. And all God's promises for His blood-bought people have been provided through the blood of Christ. So, I ask the Lord and put several passages here. What passage can I put? That we could say, yes, amen. They're everywhere in the Bible. And maybe selfishly, this one was important to me this week. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. 
I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is a promise, brothers and sisters, given to the people of God that flows out of His character to a God who cannot change and who does not lie. And so, we gather on the first day of the week so that we can corporately extend our amens. And God help people who don't feel like they need to do it. That's what he's telling the church. This is who he's writing to in 2 Corinthians. He's not simply writing to you or to me. He's writing to the very people of God. Saying God gives you promises in Jesus Christ. And in Christ every covenant finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was the seed. The seed of David. He was the reason Judah was preserved. He's the reason for it all. He was the reason God preserved this people and that king. And the reason he used that virgin. Do you believe it this morning? And if you do, embrace the promises of God. You will find yourself even in the midst of the storm having these sweet moments with your God to where you can simply say, yes, amen. You'll find the gathering of the saints very important in your life because we are all going through the same things together and we all have the same purpose. And that is this, to exalt Christ, to exalt Him. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, the purpose of your life and the purpose of the season of your life is to exalt your Jesus so that the world might see and so that the world might be saved. Let's be faithful to do it. Let's pray. And so, Lord, what an amazing book to have had the privilege of studying I think, Lord, it was timely in all of our lives to study such a book. And so, Lord, we cherish these last words of your faithful servant. And we long to be faithful. And so now, Lord, we want to lift our voices. We want our voices to be a resounding yes, a resounding amen. That we are who you say we are. And we will do everything that you say to do. So that we may enjoy you. And worship you. And so that the nations that are looking on. May see that Christ is enough. And Christ is all we have. And Christ is all they have. And so, Lord, we come now to sing. We come to come to the tables as we do every week. We don't do it as some kind of dry ritual. We do it as believers to be reminded that we are your covenant people bound together in a local church to serve and to worship. And to cling to you and to cling to each other as we reach the Canaanites of the land for Jesus Christ. You'll put us here. There is still much to do. And so, Lord, we pick up the armor.
and the sword and finish the race and the fight faithfully. But now, Lord, can we just enjoy you? And all that you are and all that you've done, we love you and we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.